Gospel of Mark again this morning. I found myself with allergies either since yesterday where I just hadn't been, my voice is leaving me, as it was obvious during the worship. It started to crackle there. I was like, oh, I just got to hold back. I normally sing that uh, last song there pretty aggressively. But I think if I lift my voice any, it's going to crackle again, and it feels weird. It's like puberty all over again or something, man. It's strange. It's a strange thing. We're not recording that part, right? Let's not record that part. All righty. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, just maybe this morning we don't find ourselves in, a, in the passage of Scriptures in Mark by accident. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 7, around verse 24. And just maybe this morning, Jesus chooses to feed us a little bit of humility, but also hope. And uh, Jesus does it the only way I think Jesus knows how, which is to do it gently. And uh, these passages that we're going to talk about this morning, they're not huge uh, theological passages. We're not going to get into some huge, deep work. We're just going to talk about the works of God. Uh, we are going to try to, sh- or at least I'm going to try to show you the gentle hands of Jesus, that he is a careful craftsman, uh, and hopefully reveal his compassionate heart this morning. I want to establish uh, may- maybe this ability to trust in the character of Jesus uh, and maybe define his nature a little bit and and hopefully develop a picture of him in your mind that you can carry with you. This is something I think, uh, uh, like I said, it was, I I wouldn't call it revelation to me. I would call it um, foundational, foundational. So I'm not going to rush through these scriptures this morning because I think if we do, uh, we would miss key elements in visually seeing the character of Jesus be established. and so, the, and I think that's important. I think as we establish the character, as we look into these things, it's important uh, to create this biblical view of Jesus, not this idea of Jesus, but a biblical view of Jesus. I think we need it. I think we need this picture of who Jesus is established within us, established within us. And I think today as we go through it, I think it'll become apparent as to why we need that. So we'll start off in Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read 24 through 30, and we'll just begin from there. Amen? Amen. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. And she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true. Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Now, if I'm just wanting to focus on Jesus, we'll get to the miracle, we'll get to all these other things, just focusing on Jesus. 
Let me tell you, first and foremost, we see that Jesus was a traveler. He spent a great deal of time traveling to different places, preaching the good news. And what is the good news is that Jesus has come to bring salvation. In traveling to new places, he encountered constantly new people. Listen, there are some things in the world of Jesus that are not different in our, of our own world. Both in the time of Jesus and now, there is so much need. So much. You can go anywhere. We can go to Burnet and we can go look and see where there's needs. We can go to Kingsland and see where there's need. We can go to Granite Shoals and we can see where there's need. Listen, we can go out of state into any state we want to and see the need of those cities. The thing about this is struggling people, whether through its financial poverty or soul poverty, struggling and hardship, it transcends time. No matter what, whatever generation you want to look at, you're going to find a generation that had struggle, a generation that endured hardship. You're going to find broken people. This poor woman comes to Jesus. She comes to him as a beggar. She has already two strikes against her. The first one is that her daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. And the second one is something she was born into. She's a Gentile. The Jews, at least back then, they weren't all that fond of the race that was currently governing and oppressing them. <laughs> they weren't so keen to help them out. And listen, racial divide isn't anything new. And anything the devil can do to keep us divided, he will. Because while we are developing a picture of Jesus here, we are also developing a picture of the enemy as well. I, all we're going to talk about is mainly Jesus today. But know this, that all the struggle he encounters, all the difficulty, the demon-possessed people or people who are, are struggling with disease and sickness and all these things, we are also developing a picture of the enemy You'd be a fool to not recognize the, two, the, the opposing presence that looms throughout the scriptures. Do you remember watching the passion of Christ? Will you play that real quick? Do you remember watching the passion of Christ and seeing, go ahead, and seeing that image of the devil just walking through the crowds? The devil is always there. Now, if you go read those passages, it's not there. He took the liberty of that. You know why he was able to do so and it doesn't bother us? Because we know he's always there looming in the background. We know that when we see violence and destruction, we see the enemy's work. We see the fruit of the enemy. So every time we come across the scripture and we says. Uh, a demon-possessed person or something. We know that the enemy's at work. We don't have to know a name. We don't have to see the physical presence or the name be mentioned. We know he's at work. While Scripture never shows him to actually be there, you know that he is because we see his fruit all over the people. And here the devil is at work on capturing and destroying the lives of the next generation. This small girl to which her mother is like frantic to be healed, Right? Even to the point that it would humble her to beg at the feet of a Jew. And if you don't know that desperation yet, then I would question if you've ever truly loved something. 
Because one thing I know for sure, we are not ourselves when we love. Love makes us do impossible things. Love makes us do crazy things. It reaches across barriers. It destroys strongholds, ideas, but it also breeds hope and breathes life. And this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Because Jesus is love personified. His first response kind of sets us back a bit. He says, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And this isn't some new principle that we take care of our own first. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what he preached in Acts 1.8 when he told us to go be witnesses in Jerusalem. Home first, then to our neighbors. So this doesn't contradict anything that he teaches us in the Bible. However, it's her response here that actually gets the attention of Jesus. It's a kingdom response. It's one that understands that goodness and mercy overflow from the table of the Lord. And it's like saying, while I might not be at the table, I'm sitting just underneath the sides of it in the overflow section. And Jesus' response to her is, good answer, good answer. And the woman goes home, and she finds her daughter completely clean and void of any spiritual entity. So who is Jesus in this passage? Jesus is someone who understands the culture of that day and the difficulties of navigating through it. Jesus was someone who also enjoyed his privacy, but realized the extent of his ministry was going to keep him from it. Therefore, he had to be secretive about certain things, or otherwise he never would have had time for prayer. Because it seems that the only time that we ever find Jesus alone is when he's praying. Jesus understands this family first idea, but above that standard is kingdom first. Let me say that again. Jesus understands family first. But above that standard is kingdom first. And in this passage, we see that the Spirit gifts us for both. Our needs at home and our needs outside our home. Lastly, this passage shows us the compassion and power of Jesus Christ. He never even had to lay a hand on this girl. At only a few prayerful words of the mother to Jesus, this woman goes home to find her daughter made whole. Can I tell you? This is the power of praying parents. Praying parents get the ear of Jesus. And Jesus has the power to heal and make your children whole. Why do parents pray? Because in this passage, we see that when a mother gets on her knees and, and asks Jesus for something, Jesus is compassionate to listen and help. Why do we pray today? Because we see in this passage that Jesus will listen and he will help. This is the picture I'm trying to show you this morning. Are we starting to see what the gospel of Mark is doing? It's creating this picture of Jesus for you. This picture is starting to come into focus. Uh, and at this point, you're try you're right now, you're kind of like seeing without seeing. You haven't seen the physical Jesus or met physical Jesus. But through scripture, you are. Let's keep moving, 31 through 37. Jesus left here and went up to Sidon before coming back to the Sea of Galilee and the, and the region of the ten towns. A deaf man 
with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone, and he put his fingers into the man's ears. Then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epepetha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. Once more, building the picture of Jesus, again, we see him traveling, healing, he's teaching everywhere he goes. This time, it's a new place. It's a new town, a new people, a new need. It's always something. Regardless of where Jesus is at, there are some common factors in everything and in everywhere he goes. There is always a need. Let's, let's, let's see that for what it is. There is always a need. Anytime you have to ask yourself, well, I'm looking for the need, then you're not looking good enough. Jesus stumbles into the next town and it finds him. Jesus goes everywhere there's a need. In every place where people congregate, there are always going to be people groups that have dire needs. The big truth is that every person, every person on the earth has dire need of Jesus. It's just that some, it's a little bit more obvious than others. In this town, the people want to see a miracle, so they bring to Jesus a man that's deaf. Notice that this man didn't come to Jesus himself. But everyone had brought him to Jesus because they wanted to see a miracle. And well, it doesn't work that way. I wish it did. You don't just get to bring things to Jesus and tell him to do this or tell him to do that. This passage of Scripture teaches this about Jesus, that he isn't a performer to your beck and call. He isn't a performer to your beck and call. He isn't about to cheapen the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God. And so he pulls the man aside in private, away from the crowd, it says, because it isn't about everyone seeing him do anything. In pulling this man alone, he looks him square in the eyes as if to convey his own compassion and also the Lord's will, and he heals the man. And then what does he do? He tells the crowd, don't tell anyone. But how many of you know we're just not the best secret keepers? We're horrible at it. We just can't keep secrets. This is also another piece of the puzzle in the image we're building on of Jesus. In this passage, we see that he is bent on the mission of traveling and telling everyone he can about his Father and about salvation that has come. We see Jesus here, compassionate. He's caring we see him more consumed with making someone whole uh, rather than, than being made a spectacle. We see him as humble Savior here. The one that Paul wrote about to the Philippian church that said he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. Because he could have been spectacular, right? Well, why don't I just heal him in front of everybody? Why don't I just do They're all wanting this wasn't about popularity. Though Jesus was Lord, he made himself approachable 
And what was his reputation amongst the people for doing it this way, for doing ministry this way? They said everything he does is wonderful. He had gained this reputation for the style of ministry that he did. He traveled around. He told people about the Father. He healed people as they had need. He prayed for people. There was nobody too low. There was no racial divide in him. That's what these passages, they give us this whole painting, this portrait of Christ. To the point where in this passage it ends with everything he does is wonderful. Can I tell you, where is that song, right? This should be the title of the song because it is the theme of his character. One more passage. Let's go to chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days and have got nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, well, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves. He thanked God for them, and he broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found, too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day. And Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got in the boat with his disciples, and he crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. Over and over and over again, the crowds just keep gathering around Jesus. But Jesus, he, he's not going to be made into an entertainer. He, he, he's not going to be made into a spectacle over the things that he can or cannot do. Jesus has a clear view of what's in front of him. Uh, what he sees are people who've traveled long and far. They've traveled through hardship to get where he is. And so he can't just send them away because he knows they're tired and hungry. Can I tell you, compassion means to have concern over sufferings or misfortune of others. And I believe Jesus sums up that word nicely. If sympathy allows us to feel sorry for the less fortunate, then compassion moves us to do something about it. This is Jesus. This is the character of Jesus. When we say we believe in Jesus, it's because we see Jesus as compassionate, not sympathetic. Jesus is not the person sitting next to you going, man, you got a rough life. You sure do. And he never does anything about it. Jesus says, well, hold my hand. Let's walk through this thing. When you pray to Jesus, you don't see him as sympathetic. Lord, things are tough. My kids, you know, are having a hard time. Lord, when these things are rough in my life, and he goes, yeah, that is tough, and that's it. That's not why you pray to Jesus. You pray to Jesus because you've learned what? That Jesus is compassionate. Well, how have you learned these things? Do you take my word on it? Do you, is this what you've heard about Jesus? No. You see it because the one thing the gospel do is they develop the character of Jesus so that we can see biblically Jesus is compassionate. 
Why? Because he helps out those who are not even of his race, who are even oppressing him. That would be considered the enemy of the Jew. He has compassion upon them. Even here in this passage, they're hungry, they're tired. He, doesn't, he never asked any of these people to come along or travel far and wide to see him, but he's compassionate, he's compelled to do something. And so when we go to Jesus, we go to Jesus because we've developed a biblical view of him that has told us he is compassionate and he will hear us and he will listen to us. This is what the scripture is teaching us this morning. Jesus won't turn them away. He's compassionate. This is his character. He is is not sympathetic. He's compassionate. He takes whatever he has and he makes it work. This is interesting here. How does he do this? Well, he does this by action of divine supernatural power. When earthly provisions aren't enough, then Jesus will take your earthly provision regardless of how significant or how small it would seem and he's able to add a piece of him to it and make it enough because spirit begets spirit and life begets life. Seven loaves seem like so little, but in the hands of God, they are much. You seem so small. I seem so small. This church, as little as we're here, seems so small. But in the hands of God, it is mighty. Because it is not what is in the hands that matters as much as the hands of Jesus themselves. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter what's in his hands. What matters is his hand. That's what matters. When anything touches his hands, it becomes something else. Seven loaves fed 4,000. Why? Not because seven loaves can, because seven loaves touched his hand. Because it's Jesus that does the work. It's Jesus that multiplies where people are fed everywhere. And you know what they're really fed? Is it really simple bread that they're fed, or is it hope? Or is it a future? Or is it trust, belief, faith, promise, or life? Right? The Bible says they ate from him. And this is, I'm quoting the scripture we just read, as much as they wanted. And there was some left over, it says. In other words, what he fed them was life and life abundant. Because it was in his hand. The picture we have of Jesus isn't one built around some idea. It's not a a picture that's built around a fairy tale. It's built around biblical history of a real person. He didn't just live back then. He's alive today as well. How do I know? First of all, because the Bible says so. That's first and foremost. Because also I can see him in people. Because I can still see his work today. I see his ministry all over the place. I go to Chick-fil-A, and you meet Alan Williams, and let him tell you about getting cancer and going to church till he was 50 and realizing he didn't know Jesus at all. Been going to church for 30 years, and he said, man, I found out I just spent 30 years of wasting my time. And then God woke me up once I got cancer, and I realized I hadn't been living for him at all. I'd just been going through the motions for 30 years. And he goes, and I, when I tell people when I got saved, I tell them I got saved in my 50s. Even though I've been to church for all that time before that, because I wasn't woke awakened to the things of God until then. And I see Jesus in Alan. I see him in you. 
I see him every time we laugh and we get together. I see him every time you wake up and decide you're going to join together with this group and just sit and listen to the stories and teachings about Jesus. Because it's kind of crazy. Like we still get and we get up every weekend and we go sit and listen to about a guy's life that's 2,000 something years ago. And we're just as excited about his life today as they were back then. It's crazy stuff in reality, right? In our culture today that doesn't believe in Jesus, they think that's so far out there. I mean, that would be considered borderline crazy. Listen, you don't come and you don't sit. You don't do those things because you believe he lived or you believe he was a good person. You do it because inside of you is a piece of him. It's a piece of him. You do it. Uh, because inside you is a piece of him living and breathing. It's there because you invited him inside you. The more you read about his affection and you hear about uh, his affection for the needy and the poor and the lowly and the hurting and the broken, the more you grow in affection for the same things. Because little by little, you are becoming him. He is taking over you. Jesus wasn't big on being an attraction. We just read all that. Jesus wasn't big on being the entertainment for everybody. He was big on life being changed. He was big on prayer. He was big on compassion. These are what the scriptures say about Jesus. He was big on relationships. When he wasn't alone, by the way, spending time with God, he spent time with his friends. Man, at that not healthy life, I don't know what is. That's healthy life. He was big on God's word. He quoted it frequently. He was big on love. We see it even here. He was big on passion and compassion. He was big on grace. You know what else he was big on? Forgiveness. And listen, so are you if you abide in him. That's the key. John 15, 4 says, abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This is the difference in our Christianity and everyone else's. You can be a branch and not produce fruit. Oh, you look like you're on the tree, and you are on the tree. But how long do you think you're going to stay on the tree? How long should the tree keep giving you everything you need to live if you're not going to produce anything that's going to help the tree grow? Because when the tree does grow fruit, you know what the fruit does? It eventually, it eventually dies and falls off the branch, right? It hits the ground. What happens at the ground? It dissolves away, right? It decomposes into the ground. What happens to the seed? It becomes, and what's it do? It plants a whole new tree. It plants a whole new tree. And if, you don't, if you're not a fruit-producing branch, how long do you think? Well, let me quote you John the Baptist who said that the branches that don't produce get cut down and made for a brush fire. By the way, it's February. This is when everybody does their control burns. I just had to throw that in there. Sorry. But if you abide in Jesus, then you will produce the fruit of Jesus. Because it's not your hand that you sit in. It's his hand. It's his hand. And isn't that what you long for? Can I tell you, isn't that what our culture is craving right now? It's craving it. Like, I know you watch the news. They are so angry about everything. They're angry about our president. They're angry about the last president. 
They're angry about every politician we got. Nobody believes, listen, anybody you talk to, one thing we can all agree on is every politician is a bad politician. Anybody who seeks power is a scary individual in the first place. All right? The, w- when we look at all that that's going on in our country, everybody's angry. We just want somebody to do the right thing. We just want justice. We, we, that's what we want. We want compassion. Uh, uh, all this stuff happening in Hollywood, you know, we just want to be treated with equality. We just, we, we, we don't want, we want sexual purity and we don't want to be treated as an object and all of these. Listen, it's, it's interesting to me because our culture is craving for Jesus. What they want is all the morals and principles of Christianity without Christ. And you and I know that that isn't possible. It, it, you are getting the fruit of what you've sown. This is the fruit of what our nation has sown. Because we have not sown the right seed, because we have not been fearless in expressing the gospel, because we have lost ourselves in a little bit of entertainment and not enough just gospel, good gospel preaching. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of things. But this is what they long for. They're longing for. I see our culture. It's like our culture just begging for Jesus. And the only thing that's going to help them is Jesus. And they're not going to like it. Nobody ever likes being told that they're sinners. Everybody wants to believe that inherently within them is a good person. If you don't believe that, look at every meme they put up. The culture of self-exaltation has never been better. I mean, it is a straight line business now. Every, uh, you know, words that all these quotes you see everybody quote, especially the younger generation, all this stuff that I see constantly on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, social media, now on the news, and, and all their idols that they look up to in Hollywood and, and, and uh, politicians and all these things that are in leadership roles, everything revolves around self-exaltation, how you can become better, how you can be a better person. You should have friends that always support you. You should have friends that make you lifted up and high where you're the greatest thing on the face of the sun. And if you don't have those kind of people in your life, you need to get rid of. By the way, all of us are horrible. The Bible says that all of us are sinners. We're all, we have no problem with self. Self is the problem. We've always been a culture of self-exaltation, and that's the problem. The very thing we're looking to build up right now is the very thing that's tearing us down. And when we give self to Jesus, Jesus takes self and he places it on the cross. And for the first time, you can live for something other than yourself and find the meaning in your heart that is missing. Right? Jesus listened to the mother because she was praying for her own need? No. Because the heart of Jesus is to live for others. And when we pray for others, whether they're our own children or anyone else, when our heart's concern is for someone so much greater than our pride, why am I a Gentile? Why am I having to get down on my knees to a Jew? Because I don't care whatever it takes to see this one healed. I'm going to do it. When we humble ourselves and come before the Lord, the only way that can happen is when we crucify ourselves. The only way. And the only way we're going to win this culture, the self-exaltation culture, that doesn't just exist in the world, guys. It's in the church full-blown. 
is to show them Jesus, to live for something other than ourselves. Let's reveal Jesus to the world in the only way that we can, and that is in us. It's the only way we can, guys. I wish to say that our words were so much powerful. Our words can be powerful. They can build up and they can tear down. But I promise you this, if Jesus is not inside of you, your words are going to tear down. Because in some way, they'll be self-exalting or something where it'll tear somebody down. It needs to be your words plus Jesus. Anything that Jesus touches breeds life and life abundance. If he abides in me and I in him, then I can pass on that life and that abundant life. Right? I see Jesus in us. I, I, I think about the different times. Here, here, you know, here's where I get encouraged. Like when I started to write this message where I really started to like cry a little bit as I was writing this. And, uh, because when I first looked at these scriptures, like I, I'm not sure like God what I'm supposed to teach here. Like am I just going to just stick to this passage here and try to develop something from this? Am I, and then as I'm getting I was like just looking at reading ahead and seeing what Jesus has done. And I find myself like tearing up thinking about it. And I was thinking about, well, when do I see Jesus? Well, I see Jesus when some of you guys come in and help set up on Saturday nights. I've had an 11-hour day on Saturday, and I'm really tired. And I mean, I think because I'm really tired of an 11-hour day, and I see somebody come in and help, I'm like super appreciative. Uh, I see Jesus when it's just me and the guys, and we go out to shoot like AR-15s, and then we're all laughing together about something, or we sell some kind of joke, and we're all just laughing. And there's this moment when we're all laughing together, and it's just unity. Just a cool moment when we're just friends. And then that, that comforting, you know, like that warm blanket of friendship, how it does, you know? Or these moments when we're sitting and talking, we're just discussing theology. And these cool moments when you like, I, I see it in you, like when the light bulb turns on. And like one thing I've learned about Jesus and the scriptures is this, that I, no matter what I say, only Jesus can open the ears and actually reveal himself to you in certain areas. And so there's nothing more. Like I see Jesus when some of you will come up to me and you go, Man, I was reading through this today, or I'll see you throw it out there on Facebook or something. I'll say, oh, man, I was reading through this today, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, man, there's that light bulb moment. That's awesome. That's awesome. I see Jesus, right? He's still active. He's still working. And you know the difference between Jesus? Jesus did, like, here's the cool thing about Jesus. He's not the entertainer. He's not the performer. He works, like, behind the scenes, right? So all I see is you. I see you typing it. I see you writing it. I see you saying it. I see you talking about it. I see you laughing. I see all of you. But deep down, you know what I see? Looming in the background of your life, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. And when I see that, and I hope this is the same for you, I get encouraged. And I start to draw strength off your walk. And when things are tough for me, right, I see your walk and I go, I got to emulate some of that. I got to pull from some of that. And it helps me. And it helps me because I see Jesus, you're real, man. I can see him in them. I see it. How you get through something. Listen, by the way, we all watch each other. So I see how you get through life, man. And I go, man, I got I to gotta figure out how they do that because I need that. And it's just you plus Jesus. I know that. But it makes me want to draw into Jesus a little bit more. And that's our challenge. That's our challenge today is to how do we abide in Jesus more? I think we do this just by constantly always turning to Jesus. One of the reasons I focused on, uh, I like to preach from books, but, but like, you know, Wednesday we're doing the Old Testament through Isaiah. Well, I could have picked any book to go through in the New Testament, but if we're going to talk about something, let's just talk about Jesus. Because I draw strength from that. 
when I constantly turn to Jesus and I constantly fix my eyes on him, I see his character. I see his compassion. I see how he forgives. I start to giggle a little bit on that part, too. Here lately, I've kind of enjoyed this idea that Jesus has, I just keep reminding myself, Jesus has tied forgiveness, my forgiveness, how he forgives me directly to how I forgive others. And I, I like tell, I was telling Joyce, like, I don't like that. That's hard. Because there's people that I would just would love to call that's my mortal enemy. You know? Because it'd be so much easier just to make flesh and bone the villain. But the Bible says that it's not. The Bible says that that stuff is the trivial stuff. The real stuff is what's happening behind the scenes. Remember when the devil walking through behind the scenes? That's the stuff I have to worry about, the stuff I can't see. It's easy to focus on what's in front of me and hate what's in front of me. But here's the thing is, if I hate it and I don't forgive it, then the way Jesus goes means like, I'm going to forgive in the measure that you forgive, which make, it should make all of us the most forgiving people there are. Christians should be the most forgiving people because in the measure that you forgive is the measure that you will be forgiven. And because he ties it to that, I wonder if he didn't laugh every time he thinks about saying that because he knows how hard that would be for us. I see his mercy. I see his grace. Every time we open our Bibles and every time we see others who are abiding him, we see these things. Everything we read today has prepared you for everything you will ever need in life, and that's for truth. If only passages you ever got right now was the scriptures we read today, you have all you need of Jesus. You have all the, all the knowledge that you would need of who he is to understand why he is Lord and who his character is. Yes, he's a traveler, but he's not somebody who needs to be a spectacle. He doesn't travel doing the evangelistic show where everybody sees him doing it. He's not, what's that, uh, leap of faith with Steve Martin where he, like, turns his coat inside out and he's got all those sparkly things on the coat and he's so happy to, like, heal everybody in front of everybody and take these huge offerings. Whatever this thing that we've made it is not who he is. Can you imagine the evangelists today that would come up and have a big crowd there meeting, but when they brought somebody up before him, it's like, no, I'll get to that in a minute. And when everybody leaves, he goes, bring that man up to me now. Let's heal him. I can't tell you an evangelist today that would do it. Matter of fact, the only way you would get an evangelist today is if they came to our church, wrote me some email, and tried to tell me how many people attend their meetings, how many people get saved at their meetings, and how many people get healed at their meetings. Most of the time when I see evangelists today, that's what I hear when they preach. Rarely do I hear like a word from God. I really hear what they've done. When I look at the scriptures and I look at the character of God, you know what makes me hunger? I just want to see Jesus. And I want to see Jesus in the pulpit. And I want to see Jesus in the pew. So that when I look at a church, I want to see rows of Jesus led by Jesus. And the sad part is I don't think it's too much to ask for because I think it's what the Bible tries to show. I think that's the biblical foundation for ministry. And I think everything we read today, you've seen Jesus in the scriptures. I think we've presented Jesus in the scriptures today. And it's my hope, it's my hope um, that you will experience him. I, I, uh, it's like a weird sermon for me because it feels so sentimental and yet this is probably one of the simplest things I'm ever going to preach. Because I, I, I try to really go deep or dig a lot and like... There's some times where it doesn't need to be deep. It doesn't need to be deep. Like, there's some times we just need to, like, really appreciate the glimpse of Christ that we have. Really appreciate that. And really have an accurate view 
of who he is. Not what we've made him. Not some clever quote, but what the biblical view of Jesus is. Take away everything else. Strip it all bare and just look at the scriptures. Who is he? Don't make him to be anything more than he is. That's what's perfect about Jesus. He's not glamorous. He's not. He's not wearing these, uh, the nicest clothes. He's just he's like the working man's guy. He looks like you and me. Probably a little hungry because he fasted quite a bit. A little starving looking. Beard a little. Uh, I don't think it's as well kept as all the paintings and the portraits make him out. You know? I think he was a wild man. I think that guy traveled all the time. And I don't know about you. I don't think they traveled in cars. I'm pretty sure that uh, he was probably pretty dusty. Might have smelt like a man. That's mean saying nicely that you probably need deodorant. All right? Uh, and I think he was real, tangible. And every time to me, this is what I hunger for, when I see something real, tangible, real brokenness, real humility, real grace, I see Jesus. That's why I find him in the simple things, like laughter of friendship. Wednesdays when we're all, it's loud in here, and we're eating, and we're telling each other different things that have happened throughout the week, and we're discussing our hobbies and all these things in that fellowship because we've all been assembled here because Christ has some call within us that draws us together, right? You know what it is? It's Christ pulling it to himself, right? So that as the body is formed, we see it in its fullness. Each as an individual, we might not see Jesus as much, but when you pull us together, we are more of Jesus. Amen? Let's worship. Let's worship.